Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this amazing community. I'm so blessed and honored by them. Thank you for those who are finding us for the first time or second time or third time. And we ask that uh, they would just feel so welcomed and embraced in this place. Uh, I pray that as we journey to the very end of the book of Numbers, as we've traversed very long, lengthy passages and time frames and disparate stories, may you remind us once again of the story, the people, and the place that we live our lives. And may we do so in accordance with this story that's been handed down to us. We bless you and honor you, um, especially as this new year begins to come closer and closer, reminding us once again that you are in the business of making all things new, all things fresh. And I pray that you can do that with us, through us, in us, once again. I pray in your name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. For those of you who have been around Spark for a little while, you know that we are attempting to do something with our faith journey that is still an experiment. I use that word because Dan and I had a wonderful conversation recently, and uh, it was just, uh, he encouraged me not to let go of experiment. And experiment in the sense of we keep wanting to try things, keep wanting to search out new ways, new understandings, keep wanting to expand our thoughts and horizons, um, keep wanting to actually press forward and say, like, like, if Jesus actually said this, if this really is the teaching in the scriptures, does this actually really work in the world? Like th- that kind of posture. And for those of you who know that if you've been around Spark for a while, if you ever get asked the question, so what is it that you believe over there? What kind of church is that? With, which sometimes um, you, some of you can get that question. It's like, what's going on at that place? It's, first of all, it's called Spark. Like, what is the name all about? Then you meet in the synagogue, and uh, then you serve food and stuff, and coffee. Everybody serves coffee. But, um, so, so you get questions about that. We have encouraged our congregation to not answer the question, well, well this is what we believe. We've encouraged our congregation to answer that question with, well, let me tell you a story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you start there. We are simply a long, a long journey of a story that's been unfolding for a long time. And people throughout that story have had a variety of different beliefs and understandings of who God is and how that is all shaped up to be. And today what I'd like to do is try to Go back six years ago now when we started Genesis and pull out two big things. These are the only two words you need to know for this entire, from Genesis all the way through Numbers. That's what I'm going to try to do. Two words are all you need to know. Repeat after me. People People. and place. place. People and place. These are the only two things that you need to know. What does the Genesis story start off with? What do we begin to journey into? Well, it was about a God who was setting this place in order. All the creation, the narrative, out of chaos, out of, for those of you who know the phrase, tohu vavohu, that wild and waste, that uh, utterless formlessness and emptiness into this beautiful thing. And then he creates another place within that place, the Garden of Eden. And then he sets people within that place. And part of the journey Uh, of people in place is you have these really poignant themes just pop right off of the story. And one of them is when God is wandering in the cool of the night and he says to Adam, this human that he has created, that God has created, where are you? A person 
and a place. Now, you know that the where are you question isn't give me your coordinates in the Garden of Eden, like E1 to J3, I don't know. That's not what I'm asking. Place in this story is once again about posture, perspective, how you see yourself, how you understand the blessings of God, how you understand the curses of the world. Where, where are you? This is, of course, right after he's eaten. Later on in this Genesis story, there's this uh, man who is wrestling. His name is Jacob with an angel in the middle of the night, all throughout the night. Finally comes to an awareness that this is God who I'm wrestling with. And he says this beautiful, this brilliant, insightful statement. God was in this place, and I didn't know it. And reading this Genesis story, you start to realize that there are these moments in our lives where God shows up and we just, I didn't know. I didn't know God was here until after God leaves. And then all of a sudden you go, I I think that was God. I I think that's, that's where God was. People in place. The story of Exodus, um, of course, is about people in place. It's about people, the Israelites, that have stemmed now from the people of Adam, the first humanity, into now a tribal group, the Israelites. And where are they? They are in a place called Egypt. And they are having to work themselves out of this place because the place that they are in is not the place that God ultimately designed and hoped for them to be. There's a different place for them. And in one of these, again, poignant moments, there's these brilliant lines in this text. This is why I love this story. God tells Moses, I want you to come up on this mountain and be with me. There's like this double statement. Come up on this mountain and be here. A person, Moses, who's representing the people, and a place. And as if God needed to emphasize to Moses once again, when you are here, be here. Not down there, not up there, be here, right here. Place is now a symbol, a metaphor for intimacy and connection. And then one-third of the entire book of Exodus, even though we hear the book of Exodus and we think about the Exodus story out of Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea and Charlton Heston and the big, you know, cane and all that stuff, we also forget, or we we sometimes forget, that one-third of the book of Exodus is actually the building of a place. A tabernacle. And this is going to be a place. And that word tab- tabernacle, mishkan, actually comes from the word shekhinah, which means the very presence of God. So the place that they are building is not just a tent. Place becomes intimacy. Place becomes this moment where the profane and the divine intermingle and come together. So you see this theme over and over again, people and place. Uh, the next book of the Bible that we talked through is Leviticus. And this is all about people and places. It's people don't be in those places with those particular things. Stop doing all that. We talked about in Leviticus, I want you to come near. The word for sacrifice in Hebrew, korban, means to draw close. So the sacrifices in Leviticus, even though they're ancient and they're bloody and they're like, what is this all about? I prefer my meat underneath cellophane, you know, in nice rows, in a refrigerated, you know, cabinet. Their meat is very, it's bloody, it's earthy. But all of this is to show something visceral and real about our distance and our sin and about how all of these sacrifices ultimately are asking God, a God asking us, come even closer. You, as the people, your place is here. 
Be holy as I am holy. Your identity, who you are as a people, is going to be modeled after me. And of course, all this happens at the tabernacle, the presence, and he will dwell with them. And this phrase is beautiful. Make for me a tabernacle, a presence place, a dwelling place, and I will be, God says, I will be in the people. This beautiful turn, these poetic twists. So all throughout this narrative, we have come to now Numbers, and we've charted out through Numbers. We start in Genesis 1, and we went all the way to the end, then Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. People in place, people in place over and over and over again. And I'm going to suggest to you at the very end of this chapter, which we're closing up our series on the book of Numbers, we are starting to see this theme even yet again. People and place. Loud people (laughs) and our place. So chapter 31, avenge the Israelites on the Midianites. There's this unfortunate story we've wrestled before with what in the world does this have to do with a redemptive, loving, gracious God? We've had those conversations. For those of you who are new, please know, questioning passages like the Midianites is acceptable, is warranted, understandable, and is welcome. These are hard passages. For this particular talk, I just want to focus on, you have to take care of some people. The people in this particular sense represent a way of living in this world that was completely opposite of the way that God intended for the Israelites to live. So you've got to take care of the community and the people around you. Once again, people and place. Chapter 32, the Reubenites and Gadites, they Zillow.com the land, and they start checking out the prices and the real estate and which parts of them they like and which parts of them they don't like. And they ultimately ask Moses. They beseech him. They say, can, can, can we take that one that right there? That one's, that one's nice. I like that lot. Chapter 33, we're back to people again. It's a building up and a representation and a rec- recounting of the military strategy against the Canaanites. And for those of you who know a little bit about your New Testament story, this is where the phrase thorns in my side actually first originate. Paul talks about in, the, uh, in his letters that there's a thorn in my side, and people talk a lot about what that is. Well, if you look at the Old Testament, thorn in the side is people. People that are making things really, really difficult for me to be exactly the kind of person that I'm supposed to be. That person is a thorn in my side. And with that definition, some of you go like, oh, I know exactly the name of the thorn in my side. People in your life that make it difficult for you to be who you are intended to be, to fulfill the calling that you were intended to fulfill. And then chapter four, it's the division and the apportionment of the land. So at the very end of the book of Numbers, as we come to the very end of this four book series, this very lengthy segment, we find ourselves once again in this repetition, people in place. These are the two most important themes, most important ideas, most important big umbrella themes of this text. If you want to know what is this ultimately all about, it's about people who you associate with and who you are, your identity, your values, your core essence of who you are, your relationships. And it's about place, promised land, Egypt, slavery, bondage, system, oppression, injustice, prosperity, freedom, liberation, equality, rights. Places represent those kinds of realities, people and place. Our good friend, uh, Cindy Parker, who has been here before, some of you know her, um, has got her doctorate in the book of Deuteronomy, and she has done her doctoral thesis work on narrative of place. 
And so I was, we're about ready to head into the book of Deuteronomy, of which she is an expert, like literally an expert in, because she's got her doctorate in. And I went to her website just to check some things out, so I, we're start, starting to prepare for that. And I noticed right at the very bottom of her page, once again, her entire thesis about the book of Deuteronomy. And the reason why I'm talking about numbers being kind of the end is because Deuteronomy is going to retell this entire story over again. And what is her main idea summing up all of her work? Investing in place and investing in people. Today we're going to look at a specific place about some specific people. And what I would love for you to hopefully take away today is the experience of liberation and the experience of freedom, the experience of atonement, which is the cleansing of your own heart and your soul that was set up for these people at the very end of the book of Numbers um, because that's going to set the theme and the tone for how they live and how they think about other people and how they think about places. So let me read this passage, Numbers chapter 35, starting in verse 9. Same theme, people in place, people in place. And they hone in on a specific kind of person and a specific kind of place. And we're going to draw that as a theme and hopefully give you a sense that you have come into this place with a very similar uh, idea, a similar coming from a similar place and hopefully leaving with the same sense of redemption. So that's what I'm hoping to do today. Numbers 35, nine, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you so that a slayer who kills a person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, so that the slayer may not die until there is a trial before the congregation. It's so fascinating to me that at the very end of the book of Numbers, at the very end of this series in the Torah, the very end of this series of being in the desert, still wandering, not quite at the place that you're supposed to be, God is setting up a judiciary. He's setting up a judicial system. So we have people in here who have gotten their law degrees and work in law. God is setting up how you are to govern civilly in this world, and he hones in on a specific thing, people who have unintentionally killed somebody else, which, how many of you, anybody? Okay, sorry, I won't do that. Now, what I want to focus in on, because cities of refuge is actually a pretty significant theme throughout the text. Uh, What I'd like to do is try to explain a little bit about what cities of refuge are, and then I'd like for you to enter into one. Cities of Refuge have big, three big themes that I see. There's more, but these are the three that I want you to hear. First, it's a city. It is an actual physical location somewhere in the promised land that you actually have to physically run to. Should you happen to be in San Francisco and the city of refuge is in San Jose, you start booking it. If you're in San Francisco and you unintentionally kill somebody, take the life and the blood of somebody else, and it was unintentional, you have to get your rear end down to San Jose, and once you cross into that border, you are now in a safe haven, a city of refuge. You are safe there. The person who may be avenging you cannot come into that location. The second thing that's really, really critical about cities of refuge is without intent. This is one, well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but this is one of the most advancing, morally pushing principles that you find in ancient texts, especially in the culture in which they were in. And the third thing is that there's this trial by the people. 
by the congregation. And in fact, for those of you who are just thinking about this right now, if you're drawing some connections, yes, this is exactly where we get our judicial system from. The idea that there is intent. We don't just have murder in our system. We, we have first-degree murder and second-degree murder and third-degree murder and manslaughter and et cetera, et cetera. We have multiple... T- Why? Because we have become so civilized as to consider, the, you know what, the intent of the person actually matters when we are adjudicating certain actions, certain sins, certain falsities. And we have to make sure that that's done in the appropriate place. And most often it's done with a jury by a community of peers. So this is so fascinating to me that way back 8th century, 9th century, you start to see the beginning of this. Okay, what is a city of refuge? First of all, a city of refuge is a place of safety. In fact, the word miklat in modern Hebrew actually means bomb shelter. So if you're going to go to a city of refuge, you are going to a place where there is imminent danger coming for you, and you get to go to that place of safety, where you are safe from that imminent danger, and you do not have to fear any more of that vengeance. And again, this is in a culture when people just simply slaughter you for whatever reason that they might feel. You have done me harm, and I'm going to do you harm. There is no judicial system. It's mano a mano, and I'm going to take my rights as a human being against you. But if you make your way to the miklat, if you make your way to the city of refuge, you are safe. The second piece is without intent. I love this word, and I just want you to say it because it makes me laugh. It's bishgaga. Everybody say bishgaga. Bishgaga. <laughs> I love that word. Every now and then I come across a word, and I'm like, oh, that word, bishgaga. Gaga. Yeah, bishgaga. Bishgaga means without intent. Now, as we've talked about before, there are multiple tiers of intent. First of all, there's complete innocence. Then maybe a step down from that is carelessness. You were walking along and you weren't thinking about what you were supposed to be doing and you accidentally, unintentionally um, hurt somebody. Maybe there's another level to that, which is negligence. You knew it was dangerous, but you didn't really care for it. Recklessness is you just don't care at all. And of course, murder is the actual intent. What's important to know about the cities of refuge that some people sometimes hear that and they think, well, shoot, I'll just kill somebody, then all of a sudden head over there. It is very specifically prescribed, bishgaga. Bishgaga. Yeah, no, I know. You want to say the English. I want you to say the Hebrew. Bishgaga. It just sounds, it sounds so good. This is very specific to negligence. There was an unintended consequence to your actions. You may have known that some of it might have been dangerous, but there was no intent whatsoever. It was just negligence. And the text actually goes to length to make sure that the Israelites know that the intent of the person who did the killing is deeply taken into consideration. But if somebody pushes another suddenly, and here's the phrase, without enmity, or hurls any object without lying in wait, or while handling a stone that could cause death, unintentionally drops it on another, which is kind of like, I'm not quite sure how that would happen, but, (laughs) and death ensues. Though they were not enemies and no harm was intended, then the congregation shall judge between the slayer and the avenger of blood in accordance with these origins. This is huge. The text goes out of its way to make sure that we take into consideration the intent 
of the person who committed the sin. And then lastly, the city of refuge is about the congregation. Numbers 35, 25. And the congregation shall rescue the slayer from the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall send the slayer back to the original city of refuge. It is setting up a system in which it is no longer bound to one person, the avenger, to simply say, I know what is just and what is right. You deserve to die. Or worse than that, I know what is just and right. You and your entire family deserve to die as a result of this crime that you've committed. No, it's no longer up to that one person. It's now up to the community of peers. This, my friends, is a huge advancement for justice and for civilization. Consider this world that you lived in. If one person happens to accidentally kill the daughter of another person, in a, a blood vengeance kind of culture, usually the person whose daughter was accidentally killed would then go and kill the daughter of the other person. There's this idea that that is what it means to be just. Sometimes in a blood vengeance kind of culture, you would just simply slaughter the entire family. You can probably consider uh, circumstances in which somebody does something um, accidentally, and what the person who received that does back to the other person is a little bit more than what the original offense was. I think I've told this story before where a friend of mine in college accidentally spilled his cup. And it got a friend of mine wet on the lap, and it was hilarious. We all laughed about it because we're in college, and we don't have frontal lobes. So we're laughing at this. Well, the person who was offended didn't just take a cup and think that, or didn't even take into consideration intent that it was an accident, went over to the drink fountain, filled up a pitcher full of ice, and then went and dumped it on his head, right? This is not eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The person who did the original offense and then had the water stood outside of the cafeteria with a hose. And when he came out, began to douse him in all of his books, etc., etc. You know where this is going. We all go to bed that night. At 2.30 in the morning, I'm in my dorm room, and I hear a scream at the top of his lungs and rumbling, and we were in a very tight-knit dorm, and so I, you, know, you, you just hear all the commotion and noise. I ignored it because I just wanted to go to sleep. It was 2.30 in the morning. We got up the next morning. We found out. We found our friend who had, you know, done the, done the vengeance, curled up on the floor without much clothing on, shivering at night because what his other friend had done after the whole hose incident is take a five-gallon bucket of ice water at 2.30 in the morning and dumped it on him on his entire bed. This is not eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You can imagine just in that very simple and silly analogy that there are moments when some sort of accident or wrong has been done. Somebody cuts you off on the freeway and what do you want to do to get them off? This is human nature. And we know that this kind of blood vengeance has happened. But this particular statute in numbers is advancing civilized sense of adjudication of all of these kinds of things. So instead of the daughter being killed of the person, you now make sure that the person who did the crime is the person that is held responsible. Consider also this. One ancient code from the Babylonia, updating to about 1750 BC, 
had different tiers for different people. And if there were accidents that happened, and accidents happened all the time, if you were at, uh, were at a certain class, then there was a certain retribution. But if you were at a lower class, then you had lower retribution. Listen to this, Law 196. If a man destroys the eye of another man, they shall destroy his eye, which is a little bit of where we get the eye for eye. If one man breaks a man's bone, they shall break his bone. If one d- destroy the eye of a freeman or break the bone of a freeman, he shall pay one gold mina. Do you, do you see how the, everything's starting to tick down? And then if one destroy the eye of a man's slave or break a bone of a man's slave, he shall pay one half of his price. In other words, people, according to this code, were not equal of value to the community. And different tiers, caste system, different social structures, different hierarchies determine different ways by which you would mete out this justice. Again, this is not eye for eye. And when you read in our text passages like Cities of Refuge and Eye for Eye, You have to understand, this is huge. This is a huge advancement. We are starting to consider the intent of the offender. We are making sure that we limit blood vengeance to the avenger and and limit to the offender, the person, not to the family. We are considering that every single person is of equal status. Making it an eye for eye actually says, we want to make sure that every single person is treated with the same level of equality. There is no hierarchy or tier. And then, of course, lastly... It calls the community, the community to that rescue, to that atonement. Not just that one person. No, no. When something has been done in our community, we are all responsible for that restoration. This is huge. This is really brilliant. One commentator wrote this. Inside the law, the Torah, the teaching is the commission to carefully consider all the aspects of the case. And it's so frustrating for me because sometimes I read, honestly, things that are happening in our legal system today, and people still don't do this. People still don't take into consideration all of the aspects of the case. And justice is still something that we are fighting for. In 1948, on December 10th, the United Nations released this Universal Declaration of Human Rights, this great moral advancement, right? And Article 10 actually states that everyone is entitled in full equality to a fair and public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal in the determination of his rights and obligations and of any criminal charge against him. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like we should take into consideration your rights, take into consideration uh, impartially all of the circumstances, and make sure that justice is meted out to, with consideration of your rights and your obligations of, of all the parties? And so frustrating sometimes that we still are struggling to fight for this. Part of the reason why we still read these ancient texts is because we still believe that even cities of refuge in these passages are prophetically critical for how we live today. Our ancestors are teaching us once again what we should consider and how we should think. So these cities of refuge are cities of safety. And what begins to happen, as you see, that if somebody unintentionally, with negligence, commits a crime, a sin, that does hurt, they are to run to this city, which is ultimately the community. And as they figure it out, as they consider all of this, the community ultimately restores that person, restores whatever is supposed to be right and whatever is supposed to be just 
within the community. And what's brilliant about this, if you read Jewish commentators about their interpretation of this throughout the centuries, you start to realize that the cities of refuge become communities of restoration. It's this huge move of saying, I see what you have done, and I know your heart, and you are welcome here, and you are now commissioned to be in this place to be restored to your full humanity. And you do not have to fear vengeance from the outside. You do not have to fear what the punishment and things that you have done. In his book, A Community Called Atonement, Scott McKnight writes this, among many other things. Atonement cannot be restricted to saving individuals, which, was the, which is the original idea. Even in Christian circles today, we still have this individualistic idea. When it is, it destroys the fabric of the biblical story, and that fabric is the community of faith. And atonement is designed to create that community. My friends, we end our series in the desert, in this book of the book of Numbers, ultimately with sin of the Midianites, the chaos of the Canaanites, the horrendous wars, the disobedience of the Israelites, the struggles and the fights, ending up in a place, a system, a city, a community, Every single person has an opportunity to be restored back to the community. We end this journey through the desert, ultimately with atonement, ultimately with restoration. What I'd like for you to do is now place yourself in this situation and consider back through this year as we take a look at the new year. Have there been moments in your life throughout this year that you have been negligent? Have there been moments in your life in which you have been careless? Have there been moments or actions or behaviors which had unintended consequences? I'm going to ask the Alvarado brothers to come forward. We're going to actually sing a song in response, and I'm going to ask for you to consider a couple things. And here's some ideas just to consider. This is one of my favorite pictures from Burning Man, that great festival out in the desert can't believe I just called it a great festival out in the desert. So some of you might have different descriptions of it, but whatever, whatever. The reason why this is one of my favorite images is because I think all of us can somehow feel what it's like to have such tension, argumentation, frustration, miscommunication in all of the relationships that we love and that we care about. And deep down inside, the reason why it hurts us and it pains us so much is because all we are desiring for is connection and love and intimacy and to be heard and to be held. My friends, have there been moments in our relationships, whether they be family relationships, business relationships, whether they be any of those relationships, where we have unintentionally been negligent. We have spoken to the outer fight, and we have neglected just, and again, unintentionally. We did not mean to do this, but unintentionally we have pushed people away. We have not sought the intimacy and the connection that was so desired. Uh, Pastor Mark sent me this documentary recently on Joshua Harris. For those of you who grew up in the 90s with the purity movement of evangelicalism, this, you will know this book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, and there's all sorts of parodies on it. You know, one of them I thought was, I want to write a book, I Kissed, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, Goodbye. That's kind of the book that I wanted to write, but... 
But in this documentary, several years later, Joshua Harris is now going back and taking a look at some of the things that he taught as a 20-year-old and, <laughs> and considering maybe I wanted to do so much good for the Lord and so much good for the body of Christ and so much good for my brothers and my sisters who I loved, but there were unintended consequences of how I talked about sex and relationships and men and women. And he's now revisiting that. And he's going through and trying to figure out, oh my goodness, I did not mean to. But there are some broken hearts and some really damaging shame that came along with some of that movement. There is perhaps no argument that we are living in a very contentious time, politically, socially. socially. And listen, we have to talk about it in some fashion. Have there been unintended consequences of the things that we've said to friends, to neighbors, for how we have voted, for how we have engaged with one another? And have we seen unintended consequences? We didn't mean for X to happen, but they have happened. And we need to know that we actually are responsible for that. And for all of these things and many more, I think it's very easy for us to consider. Maybe it didn't happen by my hands, but it did happen on our watch. There are things still around us in this world that are still happening on our watch. And so what I'd like for us to do and what I'd like for us to consider in this new year and at the end of Numbers, which I think is very appropriate, is I'd love for us to participate in a confession of sin. And I want you to imagine yourself running to this community, this place. You as the people, this place is the place. With all of your unintended consequences and unintended sins. And I want you to know that this is a community, this is a place where you will be restored. And you get to start clean and fresh and new. This place, this community, gets to actually be a city of refuge in that sense. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask you stand if you would. If you don't feel comfortable, that's no problem. You don't have to, but I'm going to ask that you stand. And what I'd like to do is just simply lead us in a confession, a prayer. And I'd love for us to consider carefully what have been the sins and the unintended consequences of our life throughout this last year. And as we head into this new year, we take this teaching, this ancient text, and we want to ourselves enter into running to the community of God where we ourselves can be restored. So we're going to confess, then we're going to sing, and then we're going to be freed. I'll read the white portion, the white letters, and you can read the yellow letters. Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And as we sing, I would just love for you to go through your mind. Where are those moments where there were unintended sins, negligence, carelessness? And just bring those forward. And as we sing together, feel the very presence of this city of refuge, of this community of refuge. Um, Bring that healing and atonement and cleansing.
So Spark, will we be the kind of community that embraces, redeems, and heals those seeking refuge from their unintended sins? And I hope that we continue to be that. And I hope that you feel um, in this place, and even the lyrics of that song are just so poignant, haunted by the past no more. You've come to this community to be free, to be redeemed, to get a new start. The old has gone, the new really has come, and it's a perfect way to end this book through all the chaos. There's this last line in the book of Numbers, 35, 34, you shall not defile the land. There's that place in which you live, in which I also dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the Israelites. And there's the people once again. People in place. And so let's confess together that we have been freed, that we have been redeemed, and we get a new start. Almighty God, we receive your forgiveness and your renewal your redemption, and your rescue of our souls. We accept and believe that we are in this moment new creations. The old has gone and the new has come. We extend to you and to this community gratitude for being loved, welcomed, and accepted. May we find safety and space to heal in this place. May we discover the freedom to journey to wholeness in this community. And may we go into this world as new creations to be a community of refuge for others. And everybody said, amen. Thanks, friends.